This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Edwige Danticat, who writes fiction, memoir, nonfiction, and essays. Her work has been nominated more than once for the National Book Award. She won the American Book Award for her novel, The Farming of the Bones, and a National Book Critics Circle Award for her memoir, Brother, I'm Dying. She is the recipient of a MacArthur Fellowship. She was born in Haiti and lived there until she was 12. Then she emigrated to America and spent the rest of her childhood in Brooklyn. She now lives in Miami. Her latest novel is Claire of the Sea Light. It tells the tale of Claire, a seven-year-old girl whose mother died giving birth to her. On her seventh birthday, she disappears after her father was going to let another woman raise her. The book is also about a variety of people that live in the Haitian seaside town where Claire lives. Edwige, let's begin with talking about Claire of the Sea Light. One of the things I was wondering while I was reading this book was if it was linked short stories or a novel. And then I realized, why does it have to be one or the other? And that the distinction may be more blurred these days. But I'd like to hear what your conception of this work is. We didn't put any label on it. You know, it's not called stories. It's not called novel. And I think that's the the space where I'm most comfortable with the book. Um, because I, you know, it is, I started writing it as stories. And, the, and then there, there are stories that are connected. You know, I don't ever want to seem like I'm taking an easy way out of a novel. Um, so I just, I didn't want to just put novel on it. But um, to me, they're connected stories in the in the way that um, these are connected lives, you know, the different characters' lives are connected. And the, the probably the, the most interesting part structurally for me about it is the fact that, you know, you have that, that I'm trying to tell the story of, of this little bitty town you know, and some of its most um, memorable and interesting characters. You know, I think this is kind of a genre on its own, you know, these these sort of um, hybrid books of fiction that fall someplace in between. There's so many great examples, you know, like um, Plain Song and, you know, Alej Kittredge, Weinsberg, Ohio, even Dubliners. One that I kept going back to over and over because it it was sort of even, um, I found even sort of more daring than, than these other examples that I mentioned was um, Gene Toomer's Kane, in, in which it was all these different, he had poetry, he had all these almost things that seemed like songs, all these different things, and sort of trying to paint a collective picture of a place of, of, of you know, using these different not only different characters, but also these different genres within what eventually, you know, what some people call a novel. So it's it's also acknowledging for me that, you know, not all of us come from this tradition of this sort of straight-laced, three-act novel, you know. Um, many of us come from different storytelling traditions and um, and allowing you know, these fictional forms to to also embrace our own individual storytelling traditions because the people in this town 
that I'm talking about would not tell a, a story the same way as people in other towns, and also allowing that form to to envelop that, to show that that kind of way of telling a story, or different ways of telling a story. So the book basically starts, and it's not really a spoiler because it happens in the very beginning, but this young girl is born the same day her mother dies, so birth and death are totally interlaced in her life. And I know it's something that was interlaced in your life as well. In your book, Brother, I'm Dying, you wrote about being pregnant and finding out that your dad was very sick um, and getting worse on the same in the same moment. And I'm wondering if that informed this story. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, it's sort of, as one gets older, it's one of those things that become more and more obvious to you um, because, you know, then you're, you know, like at my age, I'm 44, sort of in between these generations, you know, having young children at a later age than many people, and then having aging parents, you know, in my father's case, uh, having uh, a dying parent. And so it's just, it becomes so, you're sort of stuck in the middle of the cycle, you know, of, of life and death. And it was, you know, something, you know, I read a lot and something that I'd always read about, but to experience, you know, in in that year and, you know, that I talk about in Brother, I'm Dying, to experience not only losing my father, my biological father, but my uncle, who was like a father to me, who raised me, and in losing him, he was sort of the last relative I had in a very specific place in Haiti, in the place where I grew up. And then also at the same time in losing him and losing my claim to that particular piece of Haiti, you know, that particular neighborhood, that particular house, which was then, you know, destroyed in the, uh, in the earthquakes after. But, um, you know, those very, you know, circular things then sort of, that everybody, I think, at some point experiences, but, you know, just it made a profound, had a profound effect on me. And many people, you know, friends of mine who read the book, you know, say, you know, that's, that's you, that's your, that's about your dad, because there's sort of this very strong bond between this father and this daughter, of course, because the mother died and, and while she, the daughter was being born, and the father sort of had to be both mother and father, and while feeling very sort of inadequate, like he can't do it. Of course, that wasn't my specific situation, but my father left Haiti when I was two and moved to New York um, to work, um, and I didn't see him again until I was seven, you know, which is the age that Claire is um, when the book when the book starts. So. Uh, the, you know, people will say, oh, this is sort of, you kind of tried to write a childhood, you know, for yourself with your father. And um, my mother left much older, uh, when I was much older, when I was four. And, you know, I saw her when I was seven, and then when I was 12 again, then when I moved to New York. So it's um, the this idea of sort of writing a, writing a childhood, you know, for this, for this girl. And, but also acknowledging, you know, as it has 
been shown not just in my life, but in the life of so many, that in many parts of the world, you know, death is aligned with life. Life is aligned with death. They sort of walk side by side, even from birth. You know, when when a when a child is born in places where you have super high infant mortality rate, mother mortality rate, that it's something that people don't disassociate as much as they might hear that because of sort of the wrath of nature, the wrath of poverty, the wrath of political oppression, the wrath of sort of global capitalism, you know, results that people know, you know, that sort of you are always a step from death and they deal with it maybe spiritually. They deal, they deal with it by you know diff- many different means, but that cycle is ever present. You know, people never forget that just as we are born, you know, and my uncle, the minister, used to say that just as we are born, we begin dying. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Edwige Danticat. Her latest novel is called Claire of the Sea Light. On this show, Jane Smiley said she believed that there is an age that you always are. No matter how much older you get, there is a specific age that you stay in your life. And I've heard you say that you write to the girl you are when you are 15. And I'm wondering if that idea resonates with you and if you feel like you are a certain age. Oh, it definitely resonates with me. Because I, I mean, it's, I think it's such a powerful idea, and maybe different people would put that age at different, you know, different on a different space in that spectrum. But I think there there are definitely these moments that are just calcified, you know, in your life. I used to, I used to have my own notion of that. Like I used to say, well, when I was younger, um, I used to say, this is my real age. But this is my mommy age, like, so my real age would be minus the years I spent, my real age is, you know, 44, based on the year that I was born, and then I would have this mommy age, which was would be the age, my real age minus the years that I spent away from my mother, <laughs> and it was, I mean, now it sort of, it makes me want to cry just saying it, but, but that was so, such a, you know, a powerful moment and, you know, sort of powerful notion for me that I cling on to it. But, yeah, but definitely in her idea for me, I would have a range maybe between 12 and 15 because these were years that um, I was struggling so hard to remake myself and not in sort of this way of, like, redefinition, but literally, literally to remake myself, you know, to fit in into this new place to be someone and an adult to that, you know, teenage angst and all of those things. But, you know, getting used to my family, getting to know my brothers and, um, and finding, you know, thankfully a lot of comfort in books, you know, and sometimes I feel like, you know, it sounds like a writer cliche, but I feel like I don't know how I would have gotten through that, all that without love, certainly, of my family and and 
church and all of the other things that were part of those years for me, but also books, you know, just like having a place to escape on my own. You You make a mention in Claire of the Sea Light about Mm porch-style storytelling. Storytelling, yeah. And um, you come from a culture that's rich in folklore and storytelling. How how was that transition for you? Because I know that was pervasive in your childhood from maybe telling and listening to picking up the pen and actually writing. Well, I I knew when I would be part of these sessions, you know, of, of listening to the best storytellers, um, that I would not be that sort of the oral storyteller per se, like, because I was so terribly shy and there was so much, and the people who who did the porch style storytelling for me, they were so, they were stars. They were like rock stars. All of the people who I knew did it, they were just like, they lit up, they acted, you know, they didn't just say it monotone. They they sang. They were songs and all these stories. So I knew I was like I I'm not gonna be able to do that, and because I'm I'm too shy. I can't even look people in the eye. And then when I started reading books, it had to me a very similar effect. Like you know you're sitting there alone with your book, and it's like a performance. You but you create that movie in your head. And so I thought, that's how I want to do it. That's how I want to tell my stories. And within, you know, when you talk to older people, um, as I did sort of early when I began writing, they would say, well, you know, the disadvantage, you know, it sort of goes back to the whole African storytelling tradition of being a griot. And a griot travels with the story, performs the story, and adds different elements to it. The story changes as you go, you know, as you live, as you share it. But when you write it, it stays the same, (laughs) you know. And I said, well, you know, I said, okay, I'll take my chances (laughs) with that. And um, that's the transition. When you talk about the transition of um, picking up a pen as opposed to reciting a story, the transition is acknowledging to yourself, that the, that once it's down, it sort of it stays. But um, you also are spared. You know, if we're talking sort of in this design, you're spared the fact that it won't go away. Do you know what I mean? Like it's there, even if it's stagnant on some level. But at least. If the storyteller dies, the story doesn't die. As I think uh, Achebe says, Chinua Achebe said in in one of many beautiful things that he has said, something like that, he said. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Edwige Danticat. Her latest novel is called Claire of the Sea Light. Do you think if you had stayed in Haiti and never came to America, you would have become a writer? I think I'd probably be keeping notebooks and writing things. I don't know if I would have been able to publish necessarily because part of the challenge of publishing in a place like Haiti for a lot of wonderful writers, 
when we have a lot of wonderful writers, is finding places to publish. Most writers in Haiti and a lot of places in the world self-publish. And so to self-publish, you, then you would you have to have money. I don't I don't I know that based on the circumstances of my family that we wouldn't have not had we would not have had the money to you know to spare in publishing a book. I know that I probably would have been writing or would have been writing things down, would have had notebooks, but I know, I don't know that I would have been able to to publish which which always, you know, which always comes to mind for me like when I'm in Haiti or talking to young people who want to be writers and or you know just in regular conversation with people who are very creative very talented and are formulating in their minds whether they want to be writers this idea that you know because of that situation are we losing out on so many greatly talented young people but who don't have a way of publishing their work, you know, necessarily. It's very likely as as with Haiti, as with other parts of the world, that perhaps we're not hearing some very compelling stories because there's not a a way to, to for the world to know about to publish to publish them. But maybe with things now like the web and other ways these things can um can come through. I'm wondering about your relationship to America. I imagine it's complicated. The USA has occupied Haiti, intervened in its government. Your uncle died in a Homeland Security detention center in Miami, but he had all the correct paperwork to be in the country. America has also provided your family with so many opportunities, and it's your home. Yeah, my my relationship to the United States is... um rather complicated for the reasons you've mentioned. I think there's a very long history um, with Haiti and the United States, you know, starting from the U.S. occupation um, in which some of my family members were involved in sort of resisting my grandfather's um, history for us involves so much being a kaku or someone who was a very strong resistor of the American occupation, through my father's uh, brothers and sisters, my um, uncle Joseph, who raised me, his memories of being a child um, during the U.S. occupation of Haiti and sort of seeing some of the horrors up close. And then um, coming here and living here and having children here and... um, burying my father and my uncle here and then but also experiencing all of these opportunities that the you know that the country allows but which also come you know especially as people are talking about immigration reform and so forth which comes at great cost you know for everything that I think an immigrant family like mine and others For everything we experience, for everything we benefit, we sacrifice a great deal. At the same time, living here, you're sort of part of this collective that is supposed to act on and change it, you know, into whatever method you can. You sort of, because my children and my children's children will likely continue to live in the society. And often people who come from 
outside of the society see it in a way that then motivate them to join with others to to try to change things. And that will ultimately be the legacy of my relationship with this country. You know, have I have I have I tried to make any difference? Have I tried to you know, to participate in steps towards whatever change is needed, not in just the things that affect my life, but the things that affect, you know, the entire society. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Edwige Danticat. Her latest novel is called Claire of the Sea Light. Can you read something from an author that influenced you? Well, one of my favorite essays is an essay called In Search of Our Mother's Gardens by Alice Walker. I love this essay because she talks about the role of creativity in in any artist's life, but she's focusing on black women's life. So this is from In Search of Our Mother's Gardens by Alice Walker. Did you have a genius of a great-great-grandmother who died under some ignorant or depraved overseer's lash? Or was she required to take biscuits for a lazy backwater tramp when she cried out her soul to paint watercolors of sunsets? Or the rain falling on the green and peaceful pasture lands? Or was her body broken and forced to bear children who were more often than not sold away from her 8, 10, 15, 20 children when her one joy was the thought of modeling heroic figures of rebellion in stones of clay? How was the creativity of the black woman kept alive year after year and century after century when for most of the years black people have been in America, it was a punishable crime for a black person to read or write, and the freedom to paint, to sculpt, to expand the mind with action did not exist. Consider, if you can bear to imagine it, what might have been the result if singing, too, had been forbidden by law. Listen to the voices of Bessie Smith, Billie Holiday, Nina Simone, Roberta Flack, and Aretha Franklin, among others, and imagine those voices muzzled for life. Then you may begin to comprehend the lives of our crazy-scented mothers and grandmothers, the agony of the lives of women who might have been poets, novelists, essayists, and short story writers who died with their real gifts stifled within them. Do you read that a lot in your life? Oh, I read that a lot. I read it to other people. <laughs> I read it to myself because it, it reminds me to be truly grateful for what I'm able to do, for the fact that I'm able to to do the work that I do. And it, it reminds me also to, to honor all these women in our past who might have wanted to, to be in my, in my position, to be able to, you know, tell the stories that I want to tell and and there, there are women now to this day, you know, in this country and other places um, who might be dying with their stories stifled within them. So I feel like we were talking earlier about sacrifices. So much has been sacrificed for me to be able to do this. And, and every time I read that, I'm more and more grateful that I'm able to do it. And I think of others who can't to this day who are not able to. What about some something that you wrote, if you could read, that maybe it was hard to write or something that changed from the first draft or something that you just feel you succeeded at? Well, um, actually, I'll, the, the first sentence of Claire of the Sea Light was something that I 
it came really quickly because I, I, I feel like this character came when I had a kind of, you know, I just saw this a little girl in light one day, and I thought, who is that? And I started writing the story. And this was this is the first sentence as it is um, now. The morning, Claire Limielame Faustin turned seven. A freak wave measuring between 10 and 12 feet high was seen in the ocean outside of Villewoods. Claire's father, Nozias, a fisherman, was one of many who saw it in the distance as he walked towards his sloop. He first heard a low rumbling, like that of distant thunder, then saw a wall of water rise from the depths of the ocean, a giant blue-green tongue trying, it seemed, to lick a pink sky. Now, for a lot of writers, you know, the first sentence, you sort of, you know, you work and rework your first sentence because it's such a blueprint for what's um, going ahead. So initially, the you know, there, there wasn't as much detail in the first sentence. I knew that sort of the father saw this wave, and then the wave started out being 40 feet, you know, sort of the impossibility of certain things were pointed out to me, and then just adding all these things that, that set the scene because the first page is the first thing that that not only the reader sees but that sort of the writer wrestles with because that's when you know writing your first sentence do I have something here or not where do you write I write in my little office in my house next to my children's bedroom halfway between my bedroom and the kitchen <laughs> and what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing I don't ever want to get away from writing really, because I still write longhand, so I can I can potentially write anywhere. But when I'm not writing, I'm, you know, I'm just home being being a mom and doing things with my kids, but I never, ever not want, you know, to get away from writing. And who do you show your work to to get feedback? I'm really a little bit shy about that. I, you know, I, I won't really get feedback until I'm all the way through, because I'm always worried that that will change the course of the of of the thing I'm working on prematurely. So when I'm done, you know, I'll show then then I'll feel like I'm done done then I'll show it to my editor Robin Dester at Knopf or to my my agent Nicole both who are amazing readers and um but but before I I try to get feedback I I have to feel like I'm totally done. How have you dealt with rejection? Um, you know, I sulk and then I move on. You know, there's so much rejection in in my business. <laughs> there you know, there there's just it's like <clears throat> I would imagine it's like acting or something like that where you know, half the things you send out even to places where you're used to publishing you know, a lot of things get rejected. I talk, oh, it's too bad, it's too bad, and then and then I move on. Sometimes things that get rejected, after a while you're grateful because you're like, oh my goodness, thank goodness they didn't publish this, it's so bad. You know? <laughs> um, and, and then you make it better later. And what is your favorite word? Love, love. I know it's it's sort of mushy, but love because it always brings a smile on my face. There's just so many ways, so many ways to love and so many people to love and things like that. So love, 
What the world needs now is love, sweet love, love. (laughs) You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Edwidge Danticat, author of the novel Claire of the Sea Light. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.